0: Great palette of colour. Life is full of these grey areas, it's not just black and white.
1: An identity-forming experience. You are listening to Eastside Radio Podcast with discussions and insights on art, politics, music and more here on eastsidefm.org.
0: If you are still seated, I'd be very surprised. Surprise, 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 surprise. We
1: have Our next wonderful guest on the show, and he's been with us before many times, actually, and always offers interesting insights. In fact, the last time we talked to Dr. Sebastian Fouch, I think we were talking about trees surviving uh, and how we needed to take urgent action if we wanted to keep trees in our cities around the world. Uh, Because we need them so much for urban cooling, but trees do so many things that we don't take into account, and I just like walking past one some days. But uh, so I would really love to welcome to the show today Dr. Sebastian Fouch, and welcome to Monday Drive, Sebastian.
0: Thanks for having me
1: back, Ruth. It's really, we look forward, don't we Nadine, we look forward to chats with you because uh, you're an expert in one of our favourite things, which is vegetation, tree covers, everything about trees. Now you've got an amazing new project that you're working on. I was explaining to the listeners um, the work that you do at Western Sydney University and you're the project creator and research lead on something that's now achieved government support, which is really extraordinary. Tell us a little bit about this project and how it's evolving.
0: Mm. So it is a very large project. Um, We have very little time to deliver it, (laughs) and we're trying to resolve a very complex um, situation. So I'll start at the beginning. Um, In twenty. 2019, 20, there was a, well, we all know and remember it was an extraordinary summer. Um, We had drought, and it was particularly dry and hot around uh, around New Year's, uh, Christmas and New Year's. I am working with people at Sydney Olympic Park, and we observed that parts of the park at Bicentennial Park started to really brown and, and, and be very stressed, water-limited and stressed. And we investigated very quickly to find that part of the irrigation system had failed and had not, for only a couple of days, had not delivered water to the park. That meant, um, under these extreme conditions, the park became really vulnerable and some of the vegetation died off. Um, some of the vegetation got damaged. It recovered. Everything's fine. The park looks beautiful uh, now, especially with all the water that it gets. But it alerted to a very interesting situation where under climate change condition, we will see more frequent heat waves, and therefore there would be a greater risk for Bicentennial Park to undergo damage or periods of extreme stress. The reason for that is that the whole park... I'm not sure if your listeners remember, or were even in Sydney, I wasn't, when the park was created, as the name says, Bicentennial Park, it was created to commemorate the 200 years of um, Cook's Landing, and it's built on a landfill site. It was a previous, um, basically a previous rubbish dump, um, and the landfill was used to Um, create the landscape that we see today. Now, because there are so many nasties still in the ground, it was obligatory to cap with a very thick clay lens, cap the whole site so the nasties stay where they belong, in the ground. But that means that the topsoil that was then put over this clay layer is in some places only 30 centimeters deep, in other places a maximum of about a meter. So all this vegetation that you see in the park is only on 30 to 100 centimeters of soil because the, the clay lens is so compact that tree roots cannot uh, penetrate that particular layer and also water isn't really available underneath so there's no reason for the for the tree roots to actually grow through that layer. That means you have very little soil moisture holding capacity in the park, and that's what happened when the irrigation system failed. And Uh Sydney Olympic Park was uh, really alerted now to that situation where we have these extreme hot and dry conditions. If anything happens to the irrigation system, which is the lifeline, it's the... Uh, the infusion, if you want to call it that, for the park to stay alive, if that fails, then the park has only a few days of water left until everything is used up and then plant stress really accumulates and accelerates very, very fast.
1: So, Sebastian, this sounds to me like a little bit of a microcosm of what happens in many places across Australia for, different, for slightly different reasons, you know, uh, but we don't have much topsoil. And with all the land clearing we're doing, it's actually very difficult for vegetation to keep uh, moisture in the soil, and that's causing problems across the country. So solving that, I know you've got a high tech answer to this, but it's an issue for the whole country, isn't it?
0: It is, and we're we're although we are in, in Bicentennial Park and trying to resolve the irrigation solution um, or irrigation situation um, with. The solution that I will explain in a moment, um, we are we are trying to develop this piece of technology in a way that you can just unplug it at Bicentennial Park and go to the aerotropolis where we have massive land conversion and irrigation going on. Or we go to a hospital in Wagga Wagga or a school in parks or wherever you want to go um, in Australia where you irrigate. We, at Bicentennial Park, develop a system that uses environmental data to inform the irrigation system to have, particularly in summer, have optimal hydration status of our plants. Now that is the best way to cool the park microclimate because you always have happy plants that transpire freely and can therefore provide the most transpirative cooling to air Wind blows through the park and anywhere downwind from the park, you get cooler air temperatures in the surrounding um, neighborhoods, depending on where the wind comes from. It could be in Sydney Olympic Park, it could be in Concord West. Um, The green infrastructure of the park and generally what we see around Sydney Olympic Park as green infrastructure provides cooling, not just shading at the place where the tree or bush or whatever you um, want to use as green infrastructure elements, um, not only at that site, but because of the transpirative cooling, also in the wider environment.
1: So this is a a bit of an answer to the heat island effect, which is the phenomenon of cities because of all the concrete and and hard structures just getting hotter and hotter and hotter. So you're saying that this, this infrastructure of vegetation can actually cool all the surrounding areas... Whatever's downwind any, will get the cool breeze.
0: Yep. Any park, and you get a bigger effect, the bigger and the more hydrated the park is, any park delivers what we in the literature call park-cool-island effect. Ah, so is absolutely I love it. What <laughs> yep, what you're saying is absolutely true. It's the counterpart to the urban heat island effect, mm-hmm. the park-cool-island effect, where you can imagine you you have freely transpiring vegetation. And just imagine it in a a sea of red heat, you have a green, cool island. And now you blow a slight breeze through that island. And of course, at the other end, where that cool air leaves the park, you will find lower air temperatures. And that's what we're trying to deliver with Bicentennial Park, particularly for the residents in Sydney Olympic Park and around that come and visit the park. We're trying to do that by installing many, many sensors. Um, We're looking at about 250 sensors that we put into the park that look at soil moisture, air temperature, wind direction, wind speed, and also the rainfall. And we use this information to tell when, which part of the park needs water and which part doesn't need water. Because we're also using, for example, uh, Bureau of Meteorology forecast data, we can then start to learn. So this is what is called machine learning. We have algorithms that get trained to actually understand how decisions of should I irrigate or not are made to result in the optimal conditions for the plants, the moisture status in the soil being you know, for grass, let's say 20%, for trees, 18%, for uh, garden beds, 25%. We set these, these targets and the machine learning programs will pick up, okay, I irrigated yesterday, today we had wet conditions, I don't need to irrigate for the next two days because I know that this particular type of vegetation under these environmental conditions will only use X amounts of water so I'm fine for the next two days. Another type of vegetation, let's say tall trees, will use more water. So I need to look out for them and, and schedule irrigation accordingly. By doing that for more than 200 zones in the park, so think about a, a big piece of cake that you chop into very, very fine slices, we will be able to really micromanage the park for its microclimate. And that is something that we then, with our sensors, pick up and not only use to tell the irrigation system when it should and when it should not and where it should um, irrigate, but we're also using this to inform the park visitors where it is cool or where it is nice and, and breezy, so that when you come and you want to have a picnic in the park or you want to play frisbee or kick a footy, then you can look at these maps that we're producing and you can make decisions. So you really get um, um, an optimized park experience, if you want to call it that, as well. At the same time, of course, we're trying to save water um, and have a switch in the system, and this is where it's really important for anyone in the country where we saw in 2019-20 approaching day zero, like people did in Cape Town. They had 10 days left in parks where they had water, They had seven days left in other country towns in New South Wales. So they were really close to running out of water. At that point in time, you would not irrigate for cooling anymore if you have an irrigation system, but you would irrigate to keep your plants alive so you don't lose them. And that's something that we're building into it. Um, So it's not just about cooling, but it's also about keeping vegetation alive when you're really running into low water conditions.
1: So there are about 1.5 million people who visit... Bicentennial Park every year. So they yep. can use a mobile app and find the coolest spot for the picnic on the hottest day. But yes, it's very you... crowded. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, so you might have to gradiate that. <laughs> but uh, it also means so this is a counterpoint also to that evaporative effect where you're saying different parts of the park suck up and release moisture according to the vegetation. So even lakes and so forth or dams, it's quite difficult to stop a lot of water evaporating and in a country like this i mean we're swimming in water at the moment but we've had 10 or 15 years of drought and sometimes longer in in other parts just of new south wales so it's really interesting to think where this could go Uh, but one question i've got sebastian is where does the water come from at bicentennial Mm -hmm. park
0: so bicentennial park is part of sydney olympic park and sydney olympic park has its own water recycling plant on site okay so we are in this very um fortunate situation where we have basically unlimited water it is not literally unlimited but it so far has never ran out so we don't need mains water this recycling water my understanding is that um Plant uh, recycling plant receives water from mining activities in the Sydney Basin, so that's where the um, water comes from, and it is recycled on site. If we have excess water, then that is released into um, Parramatta River System, feeding creeks and other um, areas that we have where you see the mangroves and um, other creeks just flowing through Sydney Olympic Park. But all of the water is used to irrigate any green infrastructure that you see at Sydney Olympic Park, because the whole park has about 300 kilometers of irrigation pipes in the ground where every tree that you see when you come and visit Sydney Olympic Park, every tree will have irrigation. There's there's, um, this whole system when the site was established for the um, Green Games, 2000 Olympics, uh, with this underlying or invisible irrigation structure to really help the site to be able to look green without a lot of people running around with with watering cans and, and pipes and hoses and so on.
1: So it's a completely artificial park area. Um, and what you're really looking at here is producing the intelligent technology that means that if there isn't a local water source, and you do have, for instance, as you do, a recycling water plant, you can actually start to create green areas where they would not normally have a hope of being established. So you've got $2.5 million from the state government to support um, and and. Various organisations working with you, Sydney Water, of course Sydney Olympic Park must be thrilled, University of Technology in Monash and Monash and your University of Western Sydney um, all working together and industry as well, which is interesting. So this is where I think pro- sustainability actually starts to work when you get government and academia and industry all working together in this way because otherwise it's almost impossible. What's the... Um, you were talking earlier about being able to move this to other places where there are already irrigation systems. How does that creating this sort of template work for Mm. other water stressed areas of Australia? Just give us a little bit of an idea about how you can translate this to another part of the country and create a a cool island effect.
0: (laughs) Park cool island effect. Mm. Yes. So, think about the parameters that are really important to to control such a system. It's not really that important to know if it's a tree or if it's grass or shrubs or garden beds. It's also not really important to know how hot or cold it is generally. What is important is how moist is my soil and how fast is it drying. Once I understand that, I can start to optimize my water applications just based on those two parameters. That will change of course dependent on the vegetation that is on that soil that I'm irrigating. But in the end for the machine learning part of this project it doesn't really matter. So we're really trying to strip it back to the bare minimum of what you need to understand in your in your central algorithm that just runs thousands and hundreds of thousands of times uh, different scenarios. It also learns from its decisions that it made in the past. How well was I actually providing, let's say, 20% moisture at this particular spot? So once we strip all of these specifics about Bicentennial Park away, we end up with technology, first and foremost, something that we call machine learning algorithms, Uh, that only need a few input parameters, and at any site where you are, you collect these parameters and provide them to this algorithm, and then you let them run. And you let them do these, you know, hundreds of thousands of iterations. It will get smarter and smarter, and this is where smart technology really becomes smart, over time, as it understands the the effect or consequence and um, effect from what it does when it irrigates and what that means to the environment that it's actually trying to optimally hydrate.
1: So you could actually begin to build cities around an irrigation system that allowed that city to actually incorporate the cool island effect throughout its infrastructure, and we'd have a very smart city for the future instead of what we've got at the moment, which is one that heats up rapidly, cools down slowly, and floods every time it rains.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's unfortunate. At the moment, it's really extreme, but um, you are right. You can... Um, scale what we're doing up or down. So you could go, as I said, to a school or a hospital, small irrigation project, maybe five different zones. Um, We are trying to resolve this for a very complex environment that will allow us to then have a system that is flexible enough to do large irrigation applications or small ones. So we can scale further up or down. It doesn't really matter because the machine learning part will work, as I, as I try to explain, anywhere where you go. The only thing that is really important when you move this algorithm, think about it as we're providing you with a little box, and that little box contains this machine learning part of the project. Now, there are lots of different commercially available irrigation systems out there that all talk different languages, digital languages. Now, what all, all we need is basically an adapter that fits your irrigation system's language through the adapter into the box that we provide you at sydney um, olympic park authority we speak a certain language in that irrigation system we develop our system now with that adapter if we want to take the system to perth we would have to develop a different adapter that's all it really takes It's the language that the irrigation system, the technology that operates, that the irrigation system speaks. That is something that must be um, converted through that adapter. But after that, it's in your box. What is the smart part? And you can just apply that and let it run.
1: Well, I'm sure Perth would be happy because they've been experiencing the hottest summer ever on record uh, which you know temperatures that have smashed all the previous records, but at least one degree. So we are heading into situations where that will become increasingly the norm. And I think uh, earlier in the summer weren't there some re- some parts of Australia that were recorded at fifty fifty degrees?
0: Yes, it- northwest.
1: Yeah, which is unlivable and we did also uh, have a look at some media reporting on housing out in the western suburbs which has been thrown up incredibly quickly to try and boost the New South Wales economy by inviting more people to live in Sydney but which is basically producing these kind of... Coffin suburbs where people are not going to survive, and I do remember when I first got involved with the environment movement about twelve years ago. My boss saying he was having meetings out in Sydney's West about how unlivable it was going to ha- going to be in ten years' time, and we're there; it's actually happening. So this kind of technology, and your history, of course, is that you've done, and we've talked to you about. Um, the the rigid materials and the the way the planning in the past, even with children's playgrounds, yeah. um, has not been taking into account how these record-breaking heat waves that we've been experiencing and which we can look forward to more of are really impacting the health of children, the elderly and absolutely everybody in between. I don't know, have you I, I come across... Um, Now, I'm just struggling to remember that it's the sci-fi writer. His name is Kim. Um, I'm just trying to Google him. He wrote a book in 2020 which was Obama's favourite and it's called The Ministry for the Future.
0: Okay, I haven't heard of it.
1: And the beginning of the book starts with a description of the wet bulb effect.
0: Oh, yes. which
1: Which is when humidity rises... When it's so hot and it's so humid that the body's ability to cool down uh, completely breaks down and, and he describes a wave of this heat bulb effect taking place in India and millions of people dying in one day. And that's yep. how he starts the book. And, and then. Not
0: a, light, not, a, not a light read. Not a light read,
1: but, uh, <laughs> but an interesting um, cli-fi, I suppose, look um, mm. at what the solutions and so forth are going to be. Sebastian, next time I talk to you, I hope you've read it so we can discuss it.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I can tell you the uh, so called humid sheet waves are a real problem. And there's a very interesting um, piece of research happening at the University of Sydney. Professor Oli J is working on this kind of question. He's the one that writes the heat policies for the Sydney, uh, sorry, for the Melbourne Australian Open tennis games. So he's really into human heat. He he should come onto your show and talk to talk to you about it. It's very interesting how humidity um, stresses people, maybe even more than the actual temperature. Because if we have 40 degrees dry heat, that's okay. If we have 35 degrees, 80% or 85% humidity, then that's becoming really, really stressful. And yes, the body can't really cool down anymore and people die from it it's an absolute real issue
1: we've uh, taken note and we'll be inviting him on the show very soon and the novel i was <laughs> referring to
0: yes please
1: the novel i was referring to is by the writer kim stanley robinson who previously had written a trilogy about mars and probably came to the conclusion that we are never going to live there but what yeah. you are talking about with your technology is uh, you know and, and even in these heat bulb effect situations uh, it They say if you don't have air conditioning, you won't survive that effect. It's really interesting because I've been out in the Western Desert camping um several times and really noticed how even just standing under a tree the the temperature drops by one degree or something and it's really makes a big difference but i found the dry heat i was interested how i could survive it so much more than the tropical heat that i grew up in where you just have to up in far north queensland where you just have to lie down when it gets that hot but what you're talking about is actually instead of people wasting all this energy by having Aircon in their houses, which we can't afford to generate that kind of electricity in the future anyway. Particularly if we're still trying to, if we're still using coal-fired um, power. power. But you're yeah. creating big air conditioning systems in parks that then blow cool breeze to the rest of the city.
0: That's right. I call them the natural air conditioning sy- systems of cities. Yeah. We just need to be smarter about how to use them, and in the end, how to manage them um, for that exact function. It's a different approach. Normally, parks are maintained for amenity, for aesthetics. Um, some parks may have uh, edibles in them or have a track where you can where you can run. If we just add, as a management function, cooling, urban cooling to it, then yes, we have a great win-win situation for cities because they will have beautiful parks to use. Plus, you get the park cool island effect that helps uh, reducing energy consumption in surrounding neighborhoods.
1: And you've also got a place. I mean, I hate to drag the what's happening in Ukraine into our conversation today because most people are trying not to think about it twenty four seven. But you've, we've seen people sheltering in underground uh, areas to escape the bombing there and thought about what it's like when you're in a very dangerous situation and you have to seek somewhere where you can be safe. Now, our parks in the future say there were some really bad heat waves. We saw it during COVID, people flocking to parks. It could be that we need to create these areas simply for people to have somewhere to go.
0: Yes, and we already advise councils for summers to increase night activities in parks because it will bring people into the coolest environment that can be provided without big expenses. So having festivals or movie uh, theater screens, uh, plays, uh, you name it, um, should happen in these natural cool refuges that you have in your in your jurisdiction.
1: I also love this idea because I think one of the things it's that you know, people talk about saving us in the future is if we stop separating nature and humanity um, and having them kind of cordoned off from each other, if we start trying to remix it up so that we're living with nature in a smarter way and bringing nature back into the cities rather than pushing it into these so-called wilderness areas that rich people can go and visit or can buy a bit of, but that we kind of start bringing that mix back into our lives, um, this is obviously the way to go.
0: We've got the oldest living, continuous culture in this continent. We should really use the knowledge that sits within, sadly, the very few remaining elders much, much more when it comes to land management. And that's not just related to fire. It's related to all our aspects of living with the land. They mm. lived that for tens of thousands of years. We just keep ignoring the knowledge. It's, it's quite shocking. Um, mm-hmm. It was one of the drivers that brought me to Australia to really learn uh, from Aboriginal peoples. And I have for more than 20 years a very, very fine relationship with the watermark. Um, I I learn from them. I think the knowledge they still have, and sadly the elders are dying, um, the knowledge that they have is invaluable. And it, it makes me feel much better to look at functionality of landscapes, not just for financial profit but for better human gains that then also leaves us with more healthy nature it's, mm. you know once you once you hydrate it proper it's healthier it's happier it provides more food for insects or habitat for any other animal it, it's growing faster so it, it, there are a lot of add-on effects um, and as you say it's it's working with instead of against nature.
1: And I think you've just hit on something really interesting that the uh, Queensland academic who's down in Melbourne now, Tyson Yunkaporta, often talks about in Indigenous culture looking at an ecosystem not to um, multiply the numbers that come out of it so you can make profit by having mm. more sheep or more trees or more this, but to look at increase increasing the effectiveness of that ecosystem in its ability to thrive. So yep. this technology that you're doing is actually exactly that. It's looking at an ecosystem. In this case, you're starting with Bicentennial Byzant- Park and figuring out how to help that. And this is where humans actually become a an eco-custodian uh, Um, a species that's actually involved in working with nature to make things work uh, not just for us, but for everything involved in that ecosystem. So there's many levels that I love your project, Sebastian. I'm so <laughs> so glad I'm you've glad. got this. Well, I'm sure it doesn't matter to you what I think, but the fact you've got the government on board, you've got so many partners, um, and it's a very expensive project to put together. What's the total? It's something like $6 million, which actually isn't That's that right. much considering what we spend on other things. But uh,
0: Well, it is for a research project, A lot of money, um, Mm. no doubt about it. But for providing innovation and new technology, that's a very small investment to what we can gain from it. So it's about 3 million cash that we need, and we have about $3 million of in kind contribution as well. And that comes, for example, from my university through um, access to. Um, the accounting system that we have within the university, or it comes from industry partners that already have developed some technology that we don't need to start from scratch again and build up, but we can actually use it. And of course, this this industry partner then had developed um, this at their expense, so it can contribute as an in-kind to the project. So in the end, we have 18 months to deliver this, just to give you an idea about scope, what, what really is happening here with how much work is going on, we are expanding around about $150,000 every month to have all the moving parts moving and coming together. So it's, it is a lot of work. I can tell you, I probably lost a few hairs over this. <laughs> um, it's a lot of work. Um, it's very rewarding. Um, I have to say, everyone is really motivated. Everyone understands the novelty aspect of this and where this could take the group. Um, so it's it's yeah, you know, it's a good project to to have up and running and then implement uh, something that helps the community. Every every single visitor that comes to the park, and it also elevates again the the leading role of Sydney Olympic Park Authority as urban innovators, which since the Green Games, they have done so many really, really interesting examples of how urban innovation, smart technology now with this project, but lots of other projects. Um, think about the wetlands and the mangroves. It's one of the largest mangrove, inner city mangrove system that we have in the southern hemisphere. They, they brought that back from industrial wasteland. Um, we have lots of very very interesting things going on in this urban sustainability space across um, sydney olympic park so i think it's also a good match for this project to just happen there mm. because there's a culture that already has um sustainability written all over it of course there are things that are happening wrong but sydney olympic park was the first one in in i think all of sydney that has actually transplanted mature trees not just for the games but afterwards as well when. Um, urban infill started to happen so they really have over half a year prepared a massive fig tree and I think it's uh, more than five trees now that they have transplanted like that where in other places we see them chopped down they need to make space uh, for development there's a building block that needs to come in so yes
1: or a light rail Mm. or a
0: light rail thanks very much Mm. Um, um, here they prepared we always talk about Um, LUCR, L-U-C-R, Large Urban Canopy Retention. They prepared those trees for half a year, really pampered them, then had special equipment where they were cut and were put on a float and floated 500 meters to a new location where immediately you had a beautiful tree. It's possible to do it and they've, they've demonstrated how it's done. So there are things happening like that. Um, sometimes they're not very visible to the public, but in terms of uh, respecting the site, applying new ways to find out if we can do something better, and for example, retaining shade. Um, if you if you think of these fig trees again as air conditioning systems, you also provide cool at the same time. And um, there's a very interesting picture where people actually, under these transplanted fig trees, now do Pilates in their mm-hmm. in their breaks, <laughs> um, and can enjoy the shade and the and the nice park where they now have a big tree instead of waiting 50 years for the tree to actually get to that size. So it's, it's yeah,
1: there's a lot going like on. That. Yes, let's yeah. be positive because uh, there is an, uh, uh, there are amazing minds like yours out there working every day. And I'm really very grateful that in the middle of this project, you've found time to talk to us today. And I just have to say, Sebastian, you're the coolest. <laughs> no
0: pun
1: intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Long live cools That's a rather cool rather than warm. Yes. 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 All right. Yes. Well, we'll yes. talk to you again and we'll follow up some of those leads. And thanks so much for joining us today on Monday Drive. you have been listening to eastside radio podcast for selections of more enjoyable content like this visit our website eastsidefm.org and click on podcast